Hello, and welcome back to the Pastor Talk podcast. We are thrilled to have you with us again this week as we continue on in this series, The Real People of Faith. Last week, of course, we talked about the prophets. We discussed a little bit about how the prophets, as they extended throughout the history of Israel, were maybe not the most relatable people, but yet the themes with which they lived their lives and the significance in the connector between those historical stories in Jesus's time is undeniable. And you know, Clint, as we really turn our attention to today, we're going to turn our attention to John the Baptist, who is a New Testament character. So now we've switched over from the Old to the New Testaments. And yet, in many ways, John is not going to feel all that dissimilar from the prophets that we were talking about last week. Yeah, you know, Michael, I think a case can be made that John is the perfect bridge character from Old Testament to New Testament especially as we've done it, finishing with the prophets. John is really fits that mold of prophet in the New Testament. That's not a, it's not a very popular category. There's probably, in fact, only one, and he's probably it. But he's out on his own. He's calling people to repentance and to account. He gets in confrontations with the, the religious leaders and the political leaders. He is strange. He He's different. He dresses different. He acts different. The very place where he does his ministry is significant from an Old Testament perspective. And he really is, he really is the transition point, I think, probably the easiest place to see the movement from Old Testament to New Testament. And as we make that move to see the focus through John and through the entire New Testament shift to Jesus. And I think that makes him a very interesting character. I think you're exactly right. Like last week, he's probably not a character that we find personally relatable. I mean, I don't know that we'll see a lot of ourselves in him, but he is fascinating. And I think in his message, we may find something that speaks to us if we don't resonate with him as a human, as an individual. Yeah, very much. I agree with that, Clint. I think we're going to see some of those themes come in play as we go. I think what, as we start the conversation about John, we need to recognize is he actually comes from quite a pedigree. Uh, His family is in the religious order. His father is a priest. And so, There's this whole backstory to actually how he's conceived and and God uh, encountering with his father. But the short version is, I mean, he comes from a long pedigree of uh, religious institution. And so, he both starts with some privilege in that, but then he's also going to divert some of that when he goes into his prophetic phase in the wilderness. Yeah, and even his backstory is Old Testament-like. Mother's barren, father gets a vision— you know, there's that whole that whole cyclical story that we have seen, and when he's born, he's dedicated. He's called a Nazarite, which is a historic classification for those who didn't take wine and didn't cut their hair. Often, it may have something to do with his dress. What's also important, though, is he's a Galilean. He's from. Right where Jesus is from. In fact, I think it's Luke even makes a family connection, pointing out that they they are cousins. And, you know, historically speaking, there are those that question how reliable some of the information on John the Baptist might be. 
But from a scriptural perspective, that's what it tells us, that he's within not only the royal lineage or the, I'm sorry, the historic Israelite lineage of the people, but he's in Jesus' lineage. He's in the broader family, and he functions as, as a forerunner. That's really, that, that's really his role in the text. He announces yep. that the Messiah has come. He's the herald. Yeah, he is. And what's fascinating about John the Baptist, Clint, is that every gospel teller who includes his story gives a different snippet of it. There's Mm -hmm. not a whole lot of what we might call synoptic or shared visions of who John was. Each story sort of sheds a different light. In Luke, you get this backstory with some of the family stuff. And in fact, I think it's worth noting here at this stage of the conversation that that connection to the Old Testament is explicit. Clint, I mean, Luke chapter 1, verse 17, uh, uh, John's father's told, with the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him. We mentioned Elijah last week, right? So, the, the connection to the Old Testament is not accidental or implied, it's intentional and explicit. But then you go to, like, Mark, and John the Baptist is a central uh, figure in that telling of the gospel, but he just he's on the scene. He's old, he's already old. There's no backstory. It's just he's preaching, he's proclaiming in the wilderness. So you're gonna. It's not one of those cases where you can sort of read one gospel and get the whole story. Really, John's spread throughout them, and that I think points us to number one, the the scriptural significance. Right when when he is singled out, when he provides that kind of voice in scripture, you know he's important. But also, it tells you that with those diversities of tellings that the early church had lots of content about him and understood his significance in different ways. And I think that is in some ways the the part of his character that I find so rich, Clint, is because there's so many different vantages of who he was. Yeah, and I think historically speaking, and even through the scriptural lens, Michael, we can easily see that this is an important man, that this is a man to whom crowds were drawn, yep. Herod knows of him, the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law are aware of him. He had a significant following, and a case has been made that one of the things that the Scripture tries to do is to soften that a little bit, because they're writing in the mm. era when he's still known and popular, that gospel writers try to make sure that the people who read the text understood that this was really a Jesus story and not a John story. So they, they start with John, but he, he then moves off the stage very quickly, in, in fact, even uh, with his own death. But it, it's maybe most apparent in the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, where he, he explicitly, John, the author, focuses on John the Baptist's words, no, I'm not him, yeah. I'm not worthy to tie his sandals, go follow him, and he doesn't, he, he even doesn't really declare Jesus as Jesus. And I think there's a, a case that can be made that the gospel writers, they want to highlight the role of John, but they don't want to do it in a way that distracts from Jesus. I That's probably lost for us at this point, mm. because we're we're looking at all of these through the lens of history but in John's day i think he was a pretty powerful force um, you know we're told explicitly that he's outside of town and people go to him people still make their way to him so he must have had a tremendous impact on on the society and the 
the small world around him. And one of those key contributions was baptism with water. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's functioned as a symbol of what John was calling people to do. Old uh, texts, Clint, that we have in scholarship leads us to believe that the idea of water purification is not uh, something that is sort of unique to John. I mean, there's other um, traditions in the family of Judaism uh, in which one being purified with water was a part of their sort of what we might call liturgical practice or their spiritual practice. But John seems to have been able to speak of this kind of baptism in a way that did make it have a distinctive force. Because in fact, um, the gospel writers will refer to it as the baptism of John. And so, this, this call that John had in the wilderness, the call to confession, to repentance, to turn from sins, for that to be paired with baptism in water, it, it was clearly in its time a significant spiritual practice, and it was in some ways unique to John's voice, though it had shared practices in the in the time and culture. But it also then becomes important and wrapped into Jesus's own story in the famous scene of John baptizing Jesus. Yeah, and I think if I remember my Greek, Michael, and it's been a while, that we use the phrase John the Baptist, but the Greek is about the action. The word is about the doing of what he's doing. Right. And I think his title literally would have been John the Baptizing One or John the Baptizer. So yep. even even the way they talked about him was in reference to this thing that he was doing, which was a thing of repentance, a, a thing of cleansing, a thing of spiritual commitment. And therefore, when Jesus shows up, it sets up this tension. You have the Messiah approaching a prophet of sorts who is baptizing for the the reminder and remission of sins, and Jesus doesn't need it. And yet Jesus goes out there to John to be baptized, and, and John tries to talk him out of it, says, no, I, I need to be baptized from you, not the other way around. Jesus says, yeah, you have to do it. He does. And and really, I, I think if you were looking for the handoff moment, the relay moment in the story, that's probably it. From that point on, mm-hmm. John is really a kind of sideline character. And from that moment, Jesus is by far the center stage. I mean, there's just no question about that. But I think you could make a case that that's the moment of transition. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think maybe a helpful text at this stage of the conversation comes to us from Mark. And Mark's telling of John the Baptist, I'm looking here at verse 4, says that he's in the wilderness, he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We've already mentioned that. But this is key, verse 5, and people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. There's so many layers of significance to this claim. And the, the New Testament witness is often very generous to the crowds. Often the crowds get it in a way that the religious leaders never do. But notice, it's not just people in the countryside. It's also the people from the urban place, from Jerusalem, from the city. They're all feeling compelled by this mission, uh, by this proclamation, rather. And then they come out to John in what river? The River Jordan, right? This is a significant river throughout the entire history of Israel, the river that was crossed on the way to the promised land, right? So, here you have 
the confession of sins of the people, it appears almost as if, as once again, another one of these bridges, you have a prophet who comes to Israel, who proclaims repentance, and the people of Israel, who so often in the prophetic works of the Old Testament were really stone-hearted. There was very little recalling of them uh, being drawn to action in those books. Here, John the Baptist is proclaiming forgiveness of sins, and there appears to be just this wave of confession happening, regardless of where you're from, the countryside, the city, it doesn't matter. And so, it's in the midst of this sort of religious renewal that this handoff is going to happen. John is proclaiming good news, and now not only the definition of good news, but the embodiment of that good news is showing up on the scene. And so, John becomes really the forebearer, the foreproclaimer of the one who's going to literally embody the message that John's proclaiming. Yeah, and this is much harder for us to see because we're not familiar with it, but the geography of the story is fascinating. John goes out to the Jordan River. In fact, there's um, there's a school of thought that the place that he goes is the place where Elijah the prophet is taken up in the chariot. It's also the Jordan River in which he baptized. Now, not a lot of rivers, but the Jordan is most significant because it's the barrier when we talked about Joshua. It's the barrier through which the people cross. It was parted. And allowed them access to the promised land. And now in that very spot, you have one bringing the people of Israel out to that spot, that covenant spot, to renew their their passion, their connection, to repent of their sins, to turn around and to follow God, to have some sort of renewal. And Jesus comes out to that spot goes through that action, which we will later learn is on our behalf, not his, but then Jesus goes back to where the people are. And there's, a, I think, a tremendous physical movement in this story of, about the land and the places that we simply wouldn't have access to without the help of scholars. Yeah, it is amazing how many layers get combined in this story, Clint. We we may miss the nuances for it. For us, it may seem like a guy who's kind of weird. I don't think, did we mention the fact that he dresses strange? The text goes out of its way to say that he's wearing um, animal skin, right? He's out in the wilderness. He's eating weird food. And so, if you just come to John the Baptist, you might think to yourself, this is a strange guy to start the story, but if you're an early Christian, particularly someone who's aware of the history of the people of Israel, if you're a Jew, the, these connections all point to places of significance. You start seeing the geography, you start seeing the language, you start seeing the religious connections, you start seeing some of the practices that John is encouraging the people to. And you start to understand why the New Testament writers might have been a little worried that you would get the wrong message, right? It might sound like John's arrival to Jesus. But here, just literally a few verses from where we were in Mark, he says this exact thing that you were saying, Clint, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of Jesus' sandals. Um, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And there is this significant turn. John's saying, I'm the one doing physical baptism, but Jesus Christ is going to do a baptism of a radically and more permanent kind. Yeah, absolutely. And we have in John 
th- that character that stands between what has been and what will be. He's in, he's in many ways the gate through which the story goes. And one of the fascinating connections, Michael, you know, his, his message as it's recorded in the Gospels is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The first thing that Jesus is recorded preaching is the exact same verbatim words, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so I, I think what we see in that is this idea that Jesus, I, I don't want to say takes from John the message of repentance, but Jesus uses this message, which the people have been drawn to in John, and begins to expand upon what it means, begins to give evidence in his ministry and in his life of what it, what it looks like to be faithful, what it looks like to repent, to turn, and what it means that the kingdom of God is at hand, literally embodied in him. And, and I don't want to get off track and make this a Jesus podcast because our focus is John the Baptist today, but the connection of those two characters and the continuation and the expansion of that message is, is remarkable. And again, it makes John, I think, the only real place to start in the movement from Old Testament to New Testament. Probably the real defining moment, the place where Scripture does speak with a pretty unified voice about John the Baptist, is what you've already referenced, the story of the baptizing of Jesus. I think it's important that we recognize some more of that symbology, the idea that the water, uh, sorry, that the heavens are torn apart, much like the water was parted. Um, there's this sense in which heaven and earth are, the, the schism between them is broken, and the Spirit descends like a dove on Jesus, and we hear this voice, uh, you are my Son, the Beloved, and with you I am well pleased. God speaks in this moment in a kind of uh, unarguable call moment, and John the Baptist is able to, by the, the nature of this practice that he does, sort of be the the situation in which it happens. Yeah, I maybe comparable to Mary and Joseph, the idea that that God in sending Christ includes people, includes characters in the story, not not characters but humans in the story. Jesus has parents. Jesus encounters this prophet in the wilderness. In fact, Jesus will give him high praise. Right. Uh, among those born of women, nobody is higher than John the Baptist, and, and later even say um, in a not very veiled way that he is the prophet Elijah, the one who would herald the Messiah. And, you, you know, you just have that sense of God sort of partnering with those who were looking for the consolation and the restoration of, of Israel, and in, in some sense maybe even the world, though I don't know if they could have given that voice. But John stands really at the center of that, at least initially, and then again is quickly off to the side and really um, kind of out of the story from that part. There's some interesting anecdotes throughout the text about John's life, and I, one that comes to mind actually comes after his death, which I know we've not got to yet, but it speaks to his significance. Um, Jesus is preaching in the book of Mark and uh, becomes very famous. 
And some says, this is in Mark chapter 6, verse 14, that uh, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in him. Uh, So once again, just another pointer, when Jesus rises in prominence, uh, others start thinking, wow, wait a minute, this is John the Baptist raised from Mm -hmm. the dead because his name was that well-known, because his significance was that high. Um, He gets pointed to even after his death. Right. And... And of John, the scriptures say early, and then he says of himself, quoting Isaiah, when they ask him who you are, are you the Messiah? And he says, no. He says, are you Elijah? He said, no. Are you a prophet? He said, no. And he said, then what are you? Who are you? And he says, and this is a quote from Isaiah, I'm the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And uh, in Advent, we often have we often have a John the Baptist focus in Advent. I think this text is in the Advent readings. But the, again, he, the herald, this man mm. who makes straight the way of the Lord, who proclaims him coming, who shares the truth. You know, he says he was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. And maybe if there's, a, if there's an on-ramp to see ourselves in John the Baptist, Michael, maybe it's there. Mm. Maybe it's not eating locusts and honey, which, by the way, are signs of Israel again. But maybe it's this idea that we share in that semi-prophetic calling to make Christ known, Mm -hmm. to proclaim what God has done, to call people to repentance, to invite people to new spiritual truth and new spiritual life. And and in that, we have a, a kind of invitation to imitate John and the work that he did. It would be very, very difficult to read the New Testament and to not see John in some way as an archetype of what it means to respond to Jesus Christ. And that's maybe weird to say because, you know, if you look at it on a timeline, he's mm-hmm. coming before Christ. He's setting the stage for Christ. But if you want to look at the book of Acts and you see how the church expands beyond the life and death and resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, it is very much told from the lens of witnessing to what you have seen. And that is what John literally makes his ministry as it applies to Jesus about. It's to point to Jesus. It's to say, he's going to carry on the work that I'm doing in a way that you can't even imagine. And so, if we're going to try to find the real personness of John, and by that I mean try to find where it starts intersecting our lives and our daily choices and our lived existence, I do think it poses a question for us, Clint. And I think one of those questions is, to what extent has the gospel shaped our lives? Do we live in such a way that the good news is visible, not just to those in our closest circle, but to those outside of it? And that doesn't look like sticking stickers on your car, and it doesn't necessarily mean you going on Facebook and making your profile pictures. I don't mean anything that explicit. I mean, living in the world in such a way that our lives reflect Jesus Christ. And that looks like transformed behavior. It looks like humility. It looks like silence. It looks like graciousness and reconciliation. You often can recognize a person of deep faith when they walk in the room, not because of what they say or don't say, but rather because of their quiet 
humble dignity. And I, I do think there's a sense in which as we seek to be disciples of Jesus Christ, as we seek to, by the way that we live our lives, point others to him, that is going to be reflected in our lives. And that's a good self-reflective question to practice, which I think John instigates. Yeah. And I think there are two places, Michael, where maybe we can give concrete examples of that in John's own experience, John's own real personness. The first is that John, though intense and strange, we see in him a humility because rather than use his success, rather than use his notoriety to further himself, the moment he sees Christ in the scripture, he says, he must be more and I must yep. be less. He, he's going to increase and I'm going to decrease. I came here to point the light at him and, and to point out that he's the one, the Lamb of God coming into the world to forgive it of its sin, and I've done that work. That, that's my task. My task is secondary to him. I'm only here to announce. I'm not mm. here to make this about me. And I, I think we see in that a, a tremendous... Uh, humility, certainly, but but strength. It takes mm -hmm. a great deal of character to be surrounded by people who would put you on their shoulders and call you the one mm -hmm. and say, no, I'm not him. In fact, there he is. The second place I think we see that, John sends some disciples to Jesus, and, and they ask him, you know, John says, we, we need to know, what are you doing? And by the way, John has disciples. Uh, yeah. And so he sends some disciples to Jesus, and, and they say, John wants to know what's happening. And Jesus says, tell him the lame are walking, the blind are being made to see, the, the poor are being lifted up, and he'll know what that means. And, and Jesus has this tremendous trust in John's ability to discern that when the things of God are happening, that the one instigating them is the one for whom John has been waiting. And I think that it, in both cases, we see marks of John's, not only his character, but his awareness, his spirituality, his, his ability to discern what God is up to. Another aspect that I'm not sure often gets applied to John is, is really his faith, uh, because the Gospels are almost universal in their telling of how the disciples miss it over and over and over. And so often, people don't even see Jesus for who he is. And here, John, even before day one, gets who Jesus is. This is a man who is unwavering in his faith and proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord. And I do think that there's a kind of tenacity in his vision of who Jesus is that all of us could aspire to live into, that sort of unwavering faith that, that though I mean, John goes through some very tumultuous times, he dies in a very horrific way, and realistically, the fact that he can hold on to that thread line of faith with such undying confidence is, I think, for all of us an inspiration to return to our own faith and to recognize that uh, we have much to trust in the good news of Jesus. Yeah, and this may be a moment, Michael, on the other side of the coin that's difficult for us to resonate with John. You know, so often 
historically the spiritualists, the mystics, the prophets, they exist in a place that by definition is kind of outside of the norm. Mm -hmm. And they are often people who make us a little nervous, a little uncomfortable. We, We had some of that conversation last week regarding the prophets. John is certainly one of them. To be so focused on God, to be so intense in his faith and his desire to make Christ known and to herald the Messiah is, um, if not off-putting, certainly intimidating to to those of us who maybe say live in a more middle-of-the-road kind of place. And the, the wonderful gift that those people on the fringes give us is that they continually call us further and further out of ourselves, out of our status quo, out of our normal. Sometimes they do that invitationally. Sometimes they do that correctively, even angrily. But, but I think as we saw in the prophets we see in John, that that one who stands apart and says, continue to move toward a life centered in and rooted in your faith in God and God's promise to be with you and lead you and guide you and don't let anything else get in the way. And and I would say ultimately, Michael, if if we transition, that's probably what gets John the Baptist ultimately um, in, in the most trouble with the government, certainly, and it, it may be the thing that leads to his death. Very much. And Clint, there is a whole sect, and, and maybe sect isn't the right word because it makes it sound like it's more organized than it actually is. There's a whole religious tradition in this time period called zealots, people who would very much see their role and an expression of their faith as unseating Roman oppression. And so you have all of these stories of religious leaders of that time uh, taking up arms, attacking the Roman army in many different ways, um, and as you won't be surprised to hear, to very little effect. Um, you know, Rome's strength is is really just um, unbeatable. But what's fascinating is the two really most weighty people in the New Testament, Jesus by far, I mean, by leaps and bounds, but then you have John the Baptist, and neither of them fit into that zealot camp. Neither of them are calling people to take up arms, to march down Rome. They are subversive in much different ways. In fact, they draw the ire more of the religious leaders than the direct military leaders. And, you know, it's actually John's um, religious conviction. Um, He gets after Herod for um, his unfaithfulness and lewd lifestyle. And it's that thing that comes to bite them later on. It's not necessarily a direct affront on the power of the time. Yeah. So Herod, if I remember the story correctly, has married his sister-in-law. Right. And John essentially, in the midst of his preaching, calls him out. And word gets back to Herod, who throws John in prison. And Herodias, the sister-in-law, has been biding her time. She's been waiting for an opportunity to um, strike out, to lash out at John. And Herod, probably because John has this following, this popularity, has not executed him because 
he's always on the line of right. not wanting to push crowds over the edge and have these revolts that you mentioned. And, that, and so he's kind of playing the political game of saying, well, I've got him in prison. That's good enough. I, if I do any more, I could throw a match in the powder keg, and we don't want that. Well, has a birthday party. Herodias has this daughter that's very young and beautiful. She dances for Herod. And Herod says, oh, that was fantastic. I'll give you anything you want. She goes and says this to her mother, and her mother says, okay, then do me a favor. Tell him you want John the Baptist's head. And so she makes the request. Herod has made this promise in front of all these people, so now he can't look bad. And he follows through and has John the Baptist executed. And so even John's... John's call against sinfulness and his call to accountability is probably ultimately the thing that that brings about his downfall, although with the anger and the scheming of of the woman who has been offended by him. Yeah, and that actually continues a really prominent theme in the New Testament that you might miss if you're just reading quickly, is there's a lot of politics in the New mm-hmm. Testament, Clint. I mean, fundamentally, th- this idea of these differing interests and trying to appease crowds and getting called out for sinfulness, that may seem like an unusually messy situation, but it's not at all. You look to Jesus's trial and you see the very many complicated political influences related to the local leadership, the national leadership, looking to um, how we're going to sort of sneak through these differing channels, make different people happy. So, fundamentally, we should recognize that the real aspect of this story, Clint, is that it has as many nuances and crazy twists and turns as we experience in our own lives, right? Uh, there is, there's so many different uh, forces at play, and yet the revelation of God in Jesus Christ is blazingly clear to anyone who has eyes to see it. And that's fundamentally what we're supposed to recognize through the New Testament text, is that John the Baptist points us unswervingly to Jesus. And regardless of the forces at play, if one has the eyes to see what is being witnessed to or pointed to, one is going to see truth with flesh on it. Yeah, and in that, I think, hopefully we see a side of John that we can resonate with, certainly we can aspire to, his consistency. The the thing that I think you have to admire John for is that whether it's Herod staring him down, whether it's Jewish religious leaders, he he preaches the same message. He He is consistent in pointing to Jesus Christ, and anything that that transgresses what God would have us do, he's going to call out, regardless of the cost. You know, in some ways, perhaps we could call him the first martyr. I I don't know if that's completely accurate. But what we see in him is that man who fearlessly points to Christ as he believes it to be his call. And in that, certainly we see something that we should aspire to pattern in our own life. Yeah, once again, as we as we try to to look at the life of John as told in the New Testament, it's we've said this before and I I don't want to keep going back to it. It 
recognizing that John is maybe not a relatable character. Clint, John is so important in setting up who Jesus is and therefore who we as Jesus' disciples should aspire to be. I mean, you, you can't read the gospel without having affection and respect for John the Baptist. And as we seek to be those who live our lives formed by the faith, who seek to point to Jesus, it is the content of John's life and preaching that I think do give us invitations to reflect on how we can ourselves be fashioned. How can we be consistent in our morality so that the person who appears in public is the same person who lives in private? How can we be people who are defined by that key word that John lived by, repentance? In other words, the humility to leave where you're at, to turn around, and to do something different. In fact, that's what Jesus calls us to do, is to repent, to turn from our sins. That, that imagery is literally imagery that, that John proclaims even before Jesus is uh, in ministry. So, John is essential whether or not you've known it to who we understand Jesus to be and who we as Christians strive to be, um, even if you're probably not going to try to do it the exact same way that John did it. Yeah, and so with the rubric we've kind of tried to use in these podcasts, Michael, let's think for a moment what John got wrong, what John got right. From the perspective of what John gets wrong, I don't think you could say that would be anything theological. Certainly don't think that would be anything moral. You know, that probably the only thing you could mention is he's pretty eccentric. I mean, he may be a little off-putting. He may come on a little strong. He's out there in his camel hair. He's eating bugs. He's eating wild honey. He's thundering away at the river. It makes him a little bit of a curiosity, but certainly he does what he does with power, with conviction in a way that people respond to. I'm not sure that's a knock against John. I think that's his role in the story. I think as a continuation of the Old Testament prophet office or prophetic voice, that's who he is and what he does. So I'm I'm not sure it would be fair to say that he does anything wrong, but he is strange. Yeah, that's well said. I, In fact, I'm not even sure that that's a completely fair rubric to apply to yeah. John, because fundamentally, John, and I, I want to be careful here, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, Clint, because you may disagree, but I think in many ways... John functions in the height of that prophetic role that we talked about last week, and John very much is a voice for God. I mean, John is the one vessel who God uses to call the people to repentance, and as the people are moved in that direction, Jesus is there to receive them and to carry them further than John can carry. So, to even use the rubric of where John gets it wrong is probably maybe to look beyond the scope of the New Testament because John's really functioning in a kind of role that's unique to him. Yeah, and he's strange, but by definition, he has to be. Yeah, right. It, it's, the only, it's the only way he can be to fulfill his role. So let's then move to what he got right. Lots of things here and lots of things we've already said. Yeah. His passion, his intensity, his... His willingness to treat everybody the same, whether it's Herod or whether it's a priest or whether it's the person coming out, his 
insistence on being made clean. And, and I think, Michael, in the idolatry of his day, and certainly against the backdrop of the Old Testament, that may be a beautiful message we see in John, his recoupling of the proclamation of faith and the life of faith. The idea that if you're going to go out in the water and you're going to have this moment of spiritual conversion, then literally, by God, it better produce fruit in your life. Because as yeah. he says, the axe is laid at the tree yeah. for those who don't bear fruit. And and I, I think, you know, that's a that's a wonderful challenge. It's a frightening challenge. But for John to take things that we would like to separate, well, I have faith and I do what I want, and John says, no, that's not how it works. Right. The life of faith bears fruit or it's something else. You know, that's really well said, Clint. I'm not going to be able to add more categories. I think I can only say that John has always been a challenge for me personally in, in my own sort of spiritual life because I am... I'm often driven as a person to try to succeed and drive and move forward, and, and the idea of, of that moving ahead is pretty important to me personally, and the great weakness that that brings to me, Clint, is John the Baptist provides a way of being faithful without the need to be first. Mm. He, he's a faithful servant of God, and he is the first to give Christ credit. He he is happy with the second or below position. He wants nothing of being recognized as first. And you know, for me personally, I would say that John in that way represents a real challenge of personal personality propensity. Um, but I also think an inspiration because as we seek to be faithful in the world, uh, we can do so in a way that is both faithful to the gifts that we have and it both utilizes the time and space that God has put us to be his children, and we can do so in a way that doesn't make it about us, that puts Christ at the front, and to whatever extent we can do that, I think we're, we're leaning into the best of who John was. Yeah, Michael, I think that's a great last word. I hope there's been something in this conversation that has maybe been helpful uh, if not in information about John the Baptist, maybe a challenge to our own faith, our own walk as we follow Christ together. We appreciate you tuning in. We are grateful, and we hope that there's been something in here that has spoken to you. Yeah, thanks for being with us. Uh, share it if you want others to join the conversation. If there's a thing that sticks out to you, let us know because we would love to hear that. And uh, as always, we're glad to have you here. Look forward to seeing you next week, Wednesday at 9 a.m. when this releases on Facebook Live and everywhere else. Take care.